and good evening and um, welcome to uh, this first edition uh, of 2022 of the Decolonial Learning Sessions. Uh, we are talking tonight about Dutch colonialism in the 21st century in the Caribbean. And uh, I'm so happy that you're here uh, with us. My name is Chihiro and I will be your moderator for tonight on behalf of Adales, um, the organizer. And we open today's uh, session with a song by uh, uh, Antillian Dutch uh, artist, Fresco. Uh, the song is Fada. Uh, we always open with uh, activist, artist, music to get the right vibe. We will dive into the question tonight, how, how, how can it be that the Netherlands that speaks so much of human rights and equality is violating these principles uh, so systemically in the so-called Dutch Caribbean. How can colonialism have ended when there are still overseas territories? How um, um, can there be such a thing as fair dependency? These are questions that will be addressed um, by our speaker, Kjeld Kroon, who I will introduce shortly. Um, before, just a few practical notes. As I shared in the chat, this will be recorded uh, and made available on YouTube later. Um, and as we promoted this event, in, it was going to be in Dutch, but upon request um, of people English speaking who asked uh, to join, uh, we changed it to English. However, if there's anything uh, during the introduction or later in the uh, session, that isn't clear as a Dutch speaker or you need any translation, please feel free to just make a note in the chat like, hey, oh, um, can, you, can, can, you, can you explain or can you translate? And I'll make sure to um, get some um, translation as we will be addressing some political issues. It might not all be obvious. Um, so don't hesitate to ask for it. Um, so let's get started. Uh, it is my great joy to introduce our speaker, Kjeld Kroon from Bonaire. Uh, he's studying in Leida. Uh, he's specializing in decolonial and political philosophy. And I know him to be very bright and inquisitive. And uh, he's been working as an intern for Human Rights Bonaire. And I'm so excited for uh, what he will be sharing with us tonight. Uh, so, welcome, Kjeld. Uh, today you are joining us from 8,000 kilometers apart, Amsterdam, Kalendijk, and yet we're both in so-called the Dutch Kingdom. Um, how about that? The floor is yours to guide us in to um, question Dutch colonialism in the 21st century. Thank you very much, Ciro. Um, thank you, first of all, for giving me this opportunity to spread more awareness about our situation here on Bonaire. Um, I'm happy to be here. I'm uh, happy that so many people are participating and are interested uh, in, in knowing more about this. And uh, I hope that at the end of the session, everybody will be a little bit more informed about uh, yeah, how, how, what the order of business is here um, on Bonaire. I, We'll just start, I think. I'm not sure if we have to wait for any others. Looking at the moderators. <laughs> yeah, okay, then I'll go We're ahead. Go. 
Yeah, okay. Well, my name is uh, Kjeld Krom. Um, I am born in, in the Netherlands, but I was raised on Bonaire. Uh, my parents were also both of Antillian heritage. Uh, like Shiro just mentioned, I'm uh, studying in Leiden, um, focusing mostly on Lund philosophy, but focusing mostly on decolonial and political philosophy. Uh, and I'm here today to tell you guys about yeah, a story about uh, a reality that's close to my heart. Um, and it's about my home Bonaire and how we are still in this age of post-colonialism in a very colonial arrangement with the Dutch government. Um, well, one of the reasons why I'm also doing this is because um, this history, the story does not get enough attention in uh, Dutch curriculums or in social discussions about uh, inequality and all that. Um, so yeah, hence I'm here. The main thing I'm addressing is the Dutch government's policy towards the, the, the islands being uh, mostly focused on Bonaire since I'm on Bonaire and I'm from Bonaire. Um, but I'll also lightly mention some of the issues that are happening uh, on the other islands being Aruba, Curaçao, St. Martin, Seba and St. Eustatius. Um, the islands are being kept in a continuous state of economical dependency. Uh, and while some of the, the, the islands are not all in the same political arrangement, um, they still all have a very colonial tinge to it, but I'll explain that um, as we go. I'll share my screen from here on out. All right, um, can everybody see the slide? Not yet. No, oh wait, okay, then I have to, uh, one second. Yes, one second, please. Um, yes, okay, this should do it. Yeah, perfect. Okay. Um, so yes, talking about the uh, tactics of colonial legit legitimization that's happening um, in the Caribbean, in the Caribbean islands that are part of the Dutch kingdom. Uh, what I'm gonna discuss, uh, first, I will start with a little piece on one-sided narratives. Um, a lot of the news that's being uh, portrayed internationally is very one-sided. We often only hear a Dutch governmental perspective and stories of the islands don't often uh, get told um, from the perspective of the islands. Um, so I'll address that a little bit. Um, to give context to the situation that we're in right now, I'll um, have a short history lesson about the Dutch Antilles um, to see how we've landed in this political construction that we're in right now. Then I'll address the systemic inequalities that are at play um, currently. And I've, I've divided that in political tactics and economic tactics. Uh, and then I'll, I'll mention some brief possible solutions. Um, but as I'm a student myself still, uh, and I'm still figuring all of this out, I don't think any of those uh, solutions will be something absolute, but it's a starting point. Maybe we can, uh, we can think about it. Okay, um, starting at the one-sided narratives. Uh, 
the, the laws that we have in place in the system that we're in is still based on like racialized discourse from the past. Um, starting at with 1945, when the Dutch utilities were, were to be created and everything, the mentality of the policymakers at those times still held a lot of um, outdated and, and racist ideas of the people on the islands. And those things are still affecting the islands nowadays. Um, for example, the, the term good governance, which often gets thrown also in academic uh, pieces about the islands, where um, the lack of good governance on the islands is seen as the reason why there is a necessity for the Dutch government to intervene. Uh, however, uh, it's, it's very hypocritical because one of the things that is often said is, oh, the leaders on the islands are corrupt. But then if you look at who allows the corruption or who deals with the corruption, it's the same uh, yeah, Dutch government that uh, deals with these um, corrupt politicians in the first place. Um, so it's a bit of a, of a hypocritical stance to have. Um, and we must be able to showcase the corruption on both sides. Next to that, it's not like the Dutch government at the moment right now is a key, like a, a primary example of good governance. Um, if we look at recently, for example, the Tuslag Arfere and things like that, we can see that good governance is, 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 a, is a term that doesn't have much substance and it, it's being used um, when it's convenient to uh, impose more laws on the islands. Um, Cosmopolitan interests, they're superseding the local interests. Uh, and this is something that I'll address a bit further once we get to the, um, the United Nations Charter, which is something that I'll mention. But technically, as we are a dependent territory, uh, the interest of the local people needs to be, needs, they need to be prior in the territory. But yet in all the laws that are being made and everything, um, profits for the Dutch states are often being prioritized over the well-being of the people on the islands. And um, when looking at international mandates, this, this um, doesn't add up. Next to that, we have um, Dutch representatives that come to the islands or that rule over the islands from far away, but they don't have experience on the islands. They don't understand the way of life of the people on the island. And that ends up in some icky situations. One of the Best examples I have is recently where uh, Minister Polongren made a comment that if people on the islands want to get out of poverty, we should just shower less and use less air conditioning, which is honestly extremely uh, a really dumb statement to make. Uh, the island here is very hot. You cannot work in your day-to-day -day life without air conditioning because you'll, you'll, you'll just sweat and you won't be able to be productive in any in any way so it's one of those statements where you can see that she doesn't understand how the things here work the climate here is like and then makes a statement that is also based on nothing because a lot of poverty has also to do with dutch policy as we'll see a bit later um there's there's this there's there's this narrative of local people being lazy or incompetent um that's something that I'll also reflect on a bit once we get to the economic inequalities. And as I mentioned earlier, there's little to no education on the Dutch Antillian history in the Netherlands. So a lot of people um, now with bigger waves of migration of Dutch people that we have on the islands, there is this mentality of like, oh, this belongs to us anyway. Well, again, if we look at mandates by international law, that is not the case, but um, that will all come back um, as we continue. Um, 
tend to continue with a short history of the Dutch Antilles. Uh, I'm, I'm ignoring everything before 1945, or not ignoring, but I'm not handling it uh, in this presentation due to time. Uh, and the reason why I started 1945 is because that was the creation of United Nations, something that the Netherlands is part of. And also that's when we got uh, the charter on um, charter chapter 11, which um, deals with dependent territories and what the, what the responsibilities of administrating countries are who have dependent territories. Um, so that's why I stuck there. And it can all be explained in Article 73, which I have a, a little few of here. Most important are um, Part A and Part E. Part A, uh, that it, it, it gives a guideline for, in this case, the Netherlands, that they have to respect the culture of the people, um, political, economic, social, educating, um, educational advancement. Uh, and with B also, forgot to mention, is to develop self-government. So since the time of 1945, when we became, uh, right before we became the Dutch Antilles, but um, when these laws were set up, there had to be a, a continuous progress towards self-government. But as we will see in the last couple of years, we've taken, we've taken steps backwards away from that self-governance. Um, so uh, yeah, the, again, the government is the Dutch government is not meeting these requirements, and um, very importantly, E is there. There was a um, that I can't find the word right now. <laughs> Wait, okay, so the E comes down to that the Dutch government had to report annually or biannually to the uh, Secretary General of the United Nations about the progress being made on the islands in all the fields that were mentioned before. So that would have kind of give, given uh, the international community the ability to check on the islands and to see if the progress is happening or not. Um, so these three parts are, are very important and I'll show why now. So um, before 1945, before, we, uh, before the United Nations was set up, the islands, the Caribbean islands were pretty much known as Curacao and its subservience. And uh, since that didn't really meet the requirements of what the new laws were for the United Nations, um, things have been changed and agreements were made and eventually the islands were collectively categorized as the Dutch Antilles with some form of autonomy, but definitely not the amount of autonomy necessary for anyone to say that the islands had the ability to self-determine uh, because uh, the Dutch Antilles were still subservient to the, the, the Dutch kingdom as a whole, and policies for the Dutch Antilles were mandated by The Hague. And um, the islands had some limited capacity uh, to control certain things on the island, um, but it, it was definitely not self-determining. Uh, and what happened is that really early in the process of creating the Dutch Antilles, because you can say that by 1954, that the entity of the Dutch Antilles was fully formed. But way before that, six years earlier, in 1948, the Netherlands was already sending in requests to the United Nations to stop reporting on the development on the, uh, on the Dutch Antilles. And that to me raises a lot of questions and red flags, 
because then I'm thinking what incentive did they have to want to not report to the United Nations that early on? Uh, probably nothing good, but of course, as this isn't documented that well, so I can't just speak for the exact reasons they had, but um, yeah, it definitely raises some red flags. Um, then from there on out, we go to the next step uh, in the history of budget utilities, which is um, the cessation of Aruba. Um, there were tensions, there were rising tensions between the Kurosalian government and the Aruban government. Uh, uh, there were some economic reasons for that. There was a feeling on Aruba of the, the Curacao leading the Dutch Antilles and therefore that they weren't being heard enough. Um, but what happened then is that they they worked in Aruba for uh, uh, towards they they voted and they wanted complete independence from the Dutch Antilles from the Netherlands. Uh, so then they started a process towards uh, working for that. Um, in 1977, they had a referendum uh, about it. And indeed, uh, people voted to secede from the Dutch Antilles. But what happened is that at that moment, together with the Dutch government, they entered an, an agreement which didn't make Aruba independent, but rather more autonomous, but still in the Dutch kingdom. So the Dutch government still had a say, uh, the Dutch governor specifically had a say over the Aruban parliament. Um, and again, this doesn't meet any requirement of self-determination. Um, but 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 yet it created this 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 situation where you're in the middle of self-determining but also dependent on a state, and that got the name status apartheid. And the reason why that happened also was for it to be more transitional. Um, instead of a radical uh, independence, it might have might have had some strong economic consequences. But the status apartheid was kind of a middle step, which then needed a follow-up step to um, complete independence. However, that never happened, it never came. Until this day, Aruba is also still uh, in, in the Dutch kingdom. Um, and uh, one of the reasons for this is uh, because of their refinery closing also in 1990. So there was less um, uh, income for the island. So then they decided to uh, wait a bit on, 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 the, on independence. The next step in uh, Dutch Italian history is uh, is the referendum of 1994. Uh, there, the five islands who remained in the Dutch Antilles, which were Curaçao, Bonaire, St. Martin, Stacia, and Seba, <laughs> um, they all voted uh, about whether they want to remain in, in the Dutch Antilles as a constellation or if they wanted to be independent or autonomous. And in 1994, uh, most of the islands still voted to, to stay in the current constellation. Um, Bonaire, 90% of the people voted to stay in the Dutch Antilles. It shows a strong sign of unity. Um, however, in 2000, St. Martin had another referendum and there they did choose to also go for the status of parties and so a potential step towards um, independence. And it had the consequence that the other islands had to have hold another referendum uh, for them then to decide uh, what their fates would be. That referendum, that rounds of referendum happened in 2003 or 2004, depending uh, which island. 
uh, and Indus, Curaçao, who had a stronger position than the other islands, also opted for the status apart. So again, a potential step towards um, independence. And Bonaire, Sebas, St. Eustatius, they uh, opted for direct ties with the Netherlands, something that at the moment was understood as a direct integration, direct and equal integration into the Dutch kingdom, into the Dutch constitution. Um, however, the definition of direct ties was left open. Um, it, it didn't have any, any meaning yet, any interpretation, nor did the nor did anything that resulted from the direct ties meet uh, internationally recognized standards of dependency relations, which I'll go a bit into um, right, right, right after this. Um, and then we have the era of 2010 to 2021, uh, and I'll be focusing mostly on Bonaire in his, in, in his time. And that's where we get a lot of the settler, settler colonialism that I'm gonna talk about today. Um, so leading up to what we now are, which is public entity. Um, so in 2004, the people of Bonaire opted to go into direct ties um, with the Netherlands, but um, the, the real definition of it was never, it wasn't on paper. Uh, what the politicians of the time promised is that, you know, we'll get complete equality with the Netherlands, so you'll have a uh, equal standards of living, a uh, similar social safety net, and similar rights to the people in the European parts of the Netherlands. Um, however, four years later, in 2008, when it all came to, into, into, into fruition, um, it, it, it resulted that this was not the case. Uh, we, would, we, we would be integrated into the Dutch constitution as something called public entity, which isn't even a municipality, it's more like property of the Dutch state. Uh, there were uh, there were many, many, was, there were over 500 laws amended, I don't know the exact number anymore, it was 526 or something, uh, laws that were amended to, to, for this to work out in the Dutch constitution because a lot of inequalities were going to happen um, for this to work. Um, and, and, and yeah, so and so we were anchored into the Dutch constitution. Um, but before the definition of direct ties were made final and before they were to be implemented, uh, the people were promised that they would have another referendum in which they could say if they like, if they agree with how this that direct ties with the Netherlands is about to be interpreted and how it's going to be filled in. Um, however, that referendum wasn't, it didn't happen until two months after we already were integrated into the Dutch constitution. So by then it was a bit late to, yeah, to, to get out of that situation still. And there could be a couple of factors of why, um, this went as, as it went. Um, first of all, the, the referendum itself, um, so two months uh, after the status was implemented on the 10th of October in 2010, um, the, the referendum itself had a low voter turnout and there were a couple of reasons for that. Um, first of all, logistical delays. People were really confused about the referendum and um, about the status already being implemented. So, you know, what's what's the point? Uh, there were people who boycotted the referendum 
Um, it happens to be the same party that also uh, advocated for direct ties in the first place. But there was like, a, yeah, it, that boycott also caused a lot of people to be resilient towards uh, participated in the referendum. And next to that, there was also a fear of retribution from the Dutch government, where people thought that if they were to vote against the status um, at that moment, that they would get punished financially, that the island would get punished financially by the Dutch government for not going along with, um, with, with, the, with what they want. And also people were angry about the referendum because um, the ballot was supposed to be a choice between having a fully integrated model of association um, or have a, a looser, like a, a, a just association kind of in a way that, that, that Aruba has. Um, but the referendum just turned out to be a question of, well, do, do you do you like this or not? <laughs> and with with so either way, if you would say yes, if the island would say yes, we we like this, um, it, or no, we don't like this, um, it doesn't really um, lead to any change because it's just kind of a poll. Um, well, with all this going wrong, so with the 2004 referendum where people did pick to go into the um, direct ties situation with the Netherlands, with the implementation of those direct ties in 2010 without people being able to check whether they agreed with how that was filled in, and then followed by the referendum two months later where people apparently didn't turn up enough uh, to, to make a, 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 a proper, to make it a proper referendum. With all of that, um, the, the good sir that I'm working for right now, where I'm doing my internship, um, James Finney's, he started a campaign to ask for another referendum. Um, he, he sent letters to, to the Dutch King, to the, to the uh, Dutch Minister of Kingdom Affairs. And um, within all of that, he did get a response from the Dutch Minister of Kingdom Affairs, uh, who at the time was Plasterk. Uh, he responded that the people from Bonaire have retained the right to self-determination. So um, therefore, they, they, that, that, that they are granted another referendum if they choose so. Um, so with this letter from the Dutch government itself, it was, it was, it was an okay that the referendum can happen. And um, the, it was up to the Bonarian government to, to implement it and to act on it. And it took a couple of months, quite a couple of months before they actually did that, because this correspondence happened in 2013. Um, but it took up to 2015 for the referendum actually to happen. Uh, and uh, Mr. Finis, uh, he, he protested in front of the government building for 222 consecutive days, uh, just so that the local government could sign off on actually making this referendum take place. So then we get to that point where, okay, it's, it's maybe a moment of rejoicing because people can finally choose or, or finally let their voice be heard on whether they agree with the, with the political status they're in or whether they disagree with, with it. Um, so then that referendum happened at the end of 2015. Um, voter turnout was high enough. It was, it was high enough for it to be a legitimate referendum. 66% of the people voted against the current political status. 
So they voted that they voted for change and that things um, must be different. But um, at the end of that, the Dutch government just decided that the referendum was just advisory and that they don't have to actually go along with the will of the people. And uh, yeah, that leads us to where we are today, where um, 11 years, or 12 years now, it's 2022, after um, the public status entity, sorry, public entity status went into place. And uh, with a lot of complaints from, from local people, from, from, uh, from politicians and everything, there still has been no change. And uh, we're continuing on onto this path of our island uh, completely being taken over by, by, by the Dutch government and by, by those who are now coming to the island. Um, then I'll address some of the political inequalities that have resulted because of all of this. Uh, and there's quite a lot, so um, I'll try to uh, go through. Oh, sorry, as quickly as possible. <laughs> um, so, first of all, we were promised equality as islands, not only Bonaire but um, Sinter Station and Seba too. And uh, it was under the guise of us becoming just akin to Dutch municipalities. However, it resulted in us becoming public entities. Um, and uh, as I explained earlier, that just comes down to property of the Dutch state, which is um, very problematic. Uh, and next to that, there, 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 has, there have been amendments to the Dutch constitution uh, to allow the inequality on the islands to, to persist. And I'll show that here. I left the quotes in Dutch just so I, there won't be any uh, translation errors or anything. But I'll just I'll just word it out in English. You have Article One of the Dutch Constitution, which says that everybody in every situation, no matter religion, political affiliation, race, gender, anything, people can't be discriminated. That's what Article One says of the Dutch Constitution. However, Article One Hundred Thirty Two A Four says that well, in the public entities, the rules can be kind of different so that things don't have to exactly be completely equal to the Netherlands. Uh, and yeah, that in itself is already a, a big contradiction um, because yeah, if you're saying you can't discriminate people on, on any basis, then I would say geographical distance or something like that also shouldn't be a role in, 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 in this, but yet, um, the Dutch government is discriminating. Uh, this is discriminating the European part of the Netherlands from uh, the, the Caribbean ones. Um, another aspect of the political inequalities is that there is a general lack of uh, political participation. And I put uh, in parentheses in legislature behind that because it kind of applies uh, in general, but also in a, in a legislature. Um, we have no, no proper participation in the policy-making process. Um, a lot of the policies that are being made for the islands, they come from The Hague, but there is no permanent representative from the islands for the islands in The Hague. The one who's in charge of that is the Minister of Kingdom Affairs, but that's someone from the Netherlands who gets voted for there. The people here don't vote for the person who sits in that position. So we're not being properly represented. Um, rather, whatever serves the Dutch interest, the, the, the interest of the kingdom is what's being implemented on the island without 
without the locals having much of control in that. Um, next to that, uh, we, we, the, the, the Dutch constitution applies to the islands, but the islands do not have any power to amend the Dutch constitution. So there's a, a unilateral uh, direction of power and there isn't anything we can, we can do about that. And next to that is also kind of numerically impossible. And that's a, that's a solution. That's something that we have to find a solution for. Uh, on the islands, we collectively don't have enough people to get even one seat in the Dutch Tweede Kamer, the House of Representatives. So even if you were to go about it in what should be a completely fair and democratic way, we still wouldn't be able to get any proper participation. Uh, and yeah, that's that's a big problem of itself. Um, what has happened since 2010, since our integration into the Dutch constitution, is that bit by bit, our heads of department, for example, the, the hospital, the police, the school, we have one high school here, so the school, um, all, all these all these different heads of departments, which used to often be locals, they've been replaced by people who are sent from the Netherlands to come do those jobs here. Uh, and it creates more dissonance against, again, between the, the people who have been working there for years and people who are now imposing new rules, new mandates on them. Uh, so that's also, a, 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 it also just gives a bit of this colonial feel, like the government administrating the, 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 cos, the cosmopolitan government governor administrating over the people on the islands. So it's like a bit uh, of a similar uh, a feeling. And one of the other things I would like to mention is uh, the political consequences of an open migration policy. Uh, we now have a complete open migration policy for people from the Netherlands, which if itself shouldn't be a bad thing of itself. However, if you look at how that affects the demographics here and it affects the voting power of the people on the island, the natives, um, you can see that it leads to a big problem because uh, the native population itself now at this moment is already at 40% of the give or take 25,000 people that live on the island. Um, with the continuation of this open immigration policy, uh, the, the projections are that in, in, in five years from now, about five years from now will be 30, at another five years will be 20, at another five years will be 10. So pretty soon the, the, the will of the natives of the islands will be completely suppressed and it will disappear as um, the people who come from the European parts of the Netherlands can also vote pretty much immediately. Um, so then yeah, the voting power of the locals get reduced. And um, if we don't act on this, on this quickly, then I, uh, there, there might be even a case where we can't protect uh, the locals anymore in that sense. Uh, because they will always be outvoted uh, by those who recently moved here. Uh, and uh, last thing I want to mention about political inequalities is definitely not the last political inequality on the island, but just the last thing that like, I'd like to mention is that we do not have the ability to create foreign relations. Uh, we have no representation in the United Nations. We can't have representations in uh, regional supranational organs either as that all falls under uh, the responsibilities of the Dutch state and not of the, uh, the local uh, government. 
Um, and that's also something that definitely it, it doesn't help. Because um, even if you if you look, for example, at trade deals, you can't close trade deals with our nearby neighbors. Um, there's an example where we're, we're close to South and Central America. We should be able to have relative easy access to things like fruit and vegetables. Yet through the supply chain of how those things come here, um, it's actually really difficult to get fruits and vegetables, and they're also extremely expensive. Uh, a comparison that people always make is like, I think in the Netherlands, a cucumber is like 80 cents, where you pay about $3, $3.50 for one cucumber. Um, and, again, and a cucumber is like a, maybe a vegetable that isn't really grown around here. But even if you take things like bananas or, or mangoes or things like that, which are grown nearby, the, the, the amount that we pay for it, it doesn't make sense if you look at the vicinity that we have to countries that are exporting those things. But again, the, the, the local government doesn't have much control of that. Then I'll go into some of the economic inequalities that um, have been happening since 2010. Um, and again, when people when are voted for direct ties, one of the one of the main things that were promised to the people is um, equal level, equal standards of living to the European parts of the Netherlands. However, poverty has actually increased since we became uh, a, a Dutch public entity. Uh, wages and benefits are intentionally kept low by the Dutch government. Uh, and you might wonder now, huh, intentionally kept low? Yes, they are intentionally kept low. The reasoning for this, and this again has to do with these kind of racialized narratives, is that they say that, okay, well, if we make the loans higher, the, the, I mean, the wages higher here, um, then that means that people from the nearby countries will flock to the island and then soon we won't have control anymore. Um, that, yeah, that's just, uh, very problematic because then you're just creating an, an, an equal system, uh, an unequal system between the cosmopole and the islands. Um, pensions, for example, uh, for the older people, they're 40 to 50% of the minimum living standards. So they can maybe pay their rent and then they'll have to live off scraps, dry rice and things like that. Um, and also specifically with the small size of the local population, Financially, there shouldn't be much of an issue for the Dutch government, but yet they, there's always some reason, some excuse not to level um, the, the, the wages and the benefits. And that's that there's an unequal access to financial resources and jobs. Um, for example, officials who get sent from the, the, the Netherlands to work here get paid in euros, while someone who does the same job gets paid in, gets paid in dollars. Uh, now they're nearly equal, but a couple of years ago, uh, it was a, a 1.33 uh, times difference in that. So that means that the, the, the official that comes from, from the outside has way more purchasing power than the local. Um, there's different axes in loans. Uh, and this is something that one of my very business savvy friends here has pointed out to me um, and, and how that applies. Um, so an entrepreneur from the Netherlands can take a loan at a Dutch bank in the Netherlands to come do business on Bonaire. Um, however, an entrepreneur from Bonaire cannot take that same loan. They'll have to take a much lower loan here on Bonaire to do business. So 
there already inherently the Dutch entrepreneur has way more uh, potential for business. Um, I think the limit in the Netherlands was something about 700,000, while here it's $50,000. So seven, 700 euros versus $50,000. It doesn't really, uh, it's not really the same playing field. Um, then you also have this uh, program that's being incentivized by the Dutch state. Uh, it's called Bonaire Breakers. And what it comes down to is that uh, they send young young kids, young students who want to have a, a year off, who want to have half a year off. And it's like, oh, why don't you just come work on the island in, in like a bar or in a restaurant or something like that? Again, um, of itself, not necessarily a bad thing. But if you look at how this affects the economy of the islands, and how this also plays into racialized narratives of islands, it does become a problem. Um, so uh, what happens is that a lot of a lot of these um, service industry businesses, which nowadays most of them are also owned by by Dutch entrepreneurs, some Americans, they prefer to hire these part-time, short short stay, short contract workers instead of hiring locals who need. Who need that? Uh, who need longer contracts? Who probably also need benefits? Who, 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 where it's more cost? It's a bit more costly for them, sure. Um, but this creates a big imbalance too um, for the people. I mean, Chiro has been on Bonaire recently. I know there's some other people from Bonaire who are in in the chat too. You can see that in in the service industry, for example, um, pretty much every restaurant you go to, everybody who works there is predominantly not a local um, and then recently there's been a poll into the reasoning for this into like into um, asking the business owners why they choose not to hire locals and their excuse was <laughs> um, locals don't want to work as much they want to have their weekends off or want to have days off on holidays and things like that um, and therefore also calling them lazy um, that's something that's really unfair because if you actually look at it in a bigger scale, that local person who's working here has children they probably need to take care of in the weekends. They want to celebrate the holidays with their families here. If you compare it to the student that just came here for half a year to work, they don't have any other responsibilities or requirements besides going to work and going partying. Um, so it's a really unfair uh, equation to make or an unfair assumption to make to say like, oh, hey, the the locals are just lazy and um, that's why we won't, don't want to have them there. Next to that, there's also issues with education. There's a couple. Um, the first and primary one is that the kids here are not being educated in their native tongue. Uh, the reason for this as said by the state is, oh, because you're gonna, uh, Dutch gives you more access, you're gonna study in the Netherlands probably. So it makes more sense to be educated in Dutch. However, this actually severely disadvantages the local students as compared to the Dutch students who come here to study who already can dominate the language. Um, as an example, right now for the people here who, for example, don't speak French, try to learn physics in French. If you don't speak French, it's complicated. It's not that you don't understand the physics necessarily. You, you first have to break your head with understanding the French, and then you can go into understanding physics. So you're already immediately disadvantaged. Um, next to that, there are there's a big brain drain happening on the island because uh, with the higher levels of education here, people are being primed to work in, in, in markets that are not 
necessarily accessible here, um, which also causes a lot of people not to return. And uh, this, of course, can be brushed off and say, you can say, oh, you know, that's just globalization and new industries and things like that. However, uh, one thing I find very interesting is that St. Martin does have a program where they incentivize their students to work in the sectors that are available on the island and the students get benefits and get taken care of for the time that they're studying abroad um, with the promise that they come back and work for five years or something and reinvest themselves uh, in, 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 the, in the local economy. So it's not like it's something that's impossible, um, which, which is something that is mentioned sometimes like, oh, you know, we don't have control over it, but um, there, there is a possibility um, of, of changing that. Um, well, now I've gone through a list of some of the inequalities of how we got to where we are and some of the inequalities that are happening now. Um, and I'd like to mention some of the possible solutions to this. Um, first of all, this is what's being advocated by uh, James Finis, again, the, the, the story that I'm working for, is to put Bonaire back on the list of non-self-governing territories. It's this list that the United Nations has that we used to be on, but we got taken off with the creation of the Dutch Antilles. But being on this list uh, gives the international community uh, access to be on Bonaire again. Uh, we'll, we'll get access to all the um, all the organizations that fall under the United Nations, like uh, UNICEF and UNESCO and all of that. Um, that gives us a better footing to stand against the Dutch government and how they unilaterally mandate things on the island. Uh, we would need permanent representation in Dutch legislation. Uh, right now, um, St. Martin and Curaçao, for example, they have the Peloponnary minister. Uh, you, you could see that as some form of representation, but first of all, they don't really partake in, in, in the House of Representatives or anything like that. And next to that, the Peloponnary minister doesn't have any actual voting power. They just are advisory roles. Um, and yeah, if their advice doesn't suit the interests of the state, it doesn't have to be listened to. So um, of itself, that's pretty problematic. Uh, there needs to be a consistent policy or a, consist a consistent position um, for the minister or something like that of kingdom relations that's separate from the Dutch electoral system. And why separate from the Dutch electoral system? Because right now, every four years, people in the Netherlands vote on who are the or the, or the people and the parties who form the government. And depending how the Dutch government is formed, someone from a different party, someone with different interests becomes in charge of kingdom relations. So you could pretty much say that every four years, there's a reset button on progress being made towards making things better because someone with a completely different agenda comes into place. Um, and the, the, the policy towards the, the, the islands in the kingdom and, and how things should be advanced on the islands is something that is separate from, it's, it's outside of whatever any Dutch politician wants, because these are things that are mandated internationally by the Charter of the United Nations. So it's, it's very problematic and we need to find a way to get around that. Um, another thing that's very important is local initiatives for change. Um, we, we just need more of those uh, right here at Bernier's Human human rights organization, this is one of them, but um, we need a lot of more active, active participation of, of the locals too into fighting for their rights and demanding change. Mm. 
And last but not least, there needs to be a, a solid, consistent infrastructure for human rights on the island. There's something, it's something that's not really being addressed a lot. People don't pay a lot of attention to it over here. And um, yeah, that's, that's, that's not so great. All right, then we get to questions. Yay. Uh, yeah. Um, oh yeah, you, are you gonna take it from here? Oh. <laughs> I was just gonna uh, uh, join in. Um, uh, thank you, Kjeld, for um, uh, that, that overview of both historical and current um, manifestations of impact of a Dutch um, colonialism and Dutch interference in, in, in politics and, and decision-making. Um, I'm gonna open it up for questions. Uh, so please do uh, put your questions in uh, the chat, um, but I'll start it off. Um, there are so many things to go into. <laughs> um, but one thing that has been like getting some attention is that different islands have been um, uh, like suing the Netherlands or going to the UN or breaking with their former colonizer. Like um, uh, just in December, Barbados uh, closed the, the final um, uh, state connection with the Queen of England and um, Jamaica has sued for reparations uh, to the UK. Uh, we've seen um, in the Dutch context, uh, uh, Stacia in 2019 starting a court case because they've been put in conserv conservatorship. Yeah, into the conservatorship, yes. Um, uh, losing all political uh, uh, bodies or infrastructure even to make any decision making and we've seen St. Marta going to the UN uh, with a complaint concerning racism of the Dutch state. Um, what do you think of these measures uh, and what do you think um, um, is speaking from the Bonarian context um, uh, where I've also seen that a lot of people are also scared to even raise their voices for uh, punitive uh, repercussions or um, uh, gossip or other ways that could be punitive. What do you think um, is needed to um, to fight back against this this meddling? Um, I, I think one of the reasons why. A lot of this is happening anyway is because uh, the islands are pretty overlooked the pretty small islands pretty small populations um, so we don't have as strong of a voice as for example barbados or something uh, we're not in the like international limelight like that so um i feel like it's a bit easier for the dutch government to get away with things um, than than in other cases um about about the fear that people have uh, about repercussions um, that that itself is also uh, very problematic because you have people who speak out that maybe have some job that is connected to uh, to the government or, or or to being a government official 
and then they'll be reprimanded for that at their work. Um, I, I, th I think we just need to need to shed as much light as possible on the situation so people become more aware of it both here and internationally. Um, next to that, I also think there needs to be more education on, on rights on the islands. I feel like um, it's, it's something that's very lacking. Uh, people are not completely aware of what rights they have and what rights they don't. And um, it, it causes for them to be bulldozed relatively easy. Um, yeah. Those are some of the things that I can think of off on off top. Yeah, oh, we're getting a lot of uh, comments and questions in the chat. Yeah, so yeah, I'm gonna seeing take a look quite some. If we can, yeah. uh, uh, take some. Uh, so starting with Aifa, uh, um, she asked, "Thank you for your very interesting talk. Do you see any hopeful signs of progress in the new coalition agreement?" If I'm allowed to be really honest, no. Um, I, I feel like it, it. I feel like the the, the political like um, position of, of of the person who's now in in charge of kingdom relationship hasn't changed a lot. I don't think that we're that suddenly local interests, like the local will of the people, is going to take priority over. Um, how it's going to financially impact the, the wallet of the Dutch government. So if I'm allowed to be kind of like, like really honest and kind of pessimistic, I don't think, I don't expect too much from it personally. Okay. Um, there are a bunch of questions. Um, this might be uh, one to open it up also to some reflection to ourselves. Does anyone know if there are any organization activist groups in the Netherlands that address these topics as well or is it mainly on the islands themselves where resistance is being organized I personally also don't know of this I, I, I've spoken um, with you about this a little bit Chiro it's also one of the reasons why we, we, we made this connection just to, to spread more awareness and see if we can get more people involved but that I'm personally aware of, uh, I don't know any organizations in the Netherlands that's um, fighting for, for, for this cause. And do you think, do you have any idea, because um, um, there are more students coming from different islands to the Netherlands? Um, do you have any idea if, um, if there are structural reasons for them to not be um, not be more vocal, um, I, I I don't I don't know how much of that is kind of attributable to something really intentionally being done, but um, from what I've known, most a lot of the students who go there that they they want to get in and get out. You know, just get their get their degree and, and go back home. And uh, from uh, there, from a lot of the people that I know, at least, um, it's also something that maybe they're not aware of or they're not interested in. Um, in that sense, it isn't it isn't being talked enough even on the islands for there to be this this collective con like collective movement about it. So um, yeah, when 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 they get there, there also isn't being much done. Um, yeah. 
I, I know, I know, I know a couple, a couple of, of contemporaries of mine that are, are being a bit more vocal about it. I think somebody says you have the Caribbean Ancestry Club in Rotterdam. It's not necessarily an organization, but they organize events about decolonization and they or and the organizers are from Bonaire and Curaçao. You used to have the University of Color in Amsterdam. Yeah, yeah. So oh. I am aware of the Caribbean Ancestry Club. Um, I, I also follow them a bit and see what they're up to. Although I don't see much political action there um, in a sense of, of, of um, in, involved in politics and policy change. Um, it, it's more of a, of a um, from what I understood, I could be completely wrong about this. It's more of like, a, of, of like a safe space and people sharing and being more knowledgeable about their history and all of that. Um, but my response was more towards organizations that are um, fighting politically um, yeah. for it. And of that, I, I don't I don't know any. Yeah, I also see Durwin making some comments around uh, an introduction course to Caribbean studies. Maybe you can make uh, some more, uh, give a little bit more uh, context if that also addresses decolonization. Because uh, often when we do see even like uh, uh, articles on the, um, uh, of course, there's the um, the, the NTR site on on Caribbean news, but it mm -hmm. it lacks a critical decolonial analysis. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. uh, um, mm -hmm. yeah, um, sometimes there is 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 news, but it's not all decolonial. <laughs> um, there. A bunch more questions, but we're also running into a break time. I'm going to take one more uh, before break. And when we come back, we're going to go into breakout rooms. So we'll discuss some of these things more uh, with each other in smaller formations. Um, so one question I see here, uh, Kjeld, you've uh, given your suggestion for representation in the Tweede Kamer, it seems like you're pushing for inclusion into full citizenship within the Netherlands for Bonaire and other islands, as opposed to independence. Um, what is the sentiment like in Bonaire? Is there a preference for being part of the Netherlands or for ind independence from the Netherlands? That's a clarification question. Um, I, 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 before I, I answer what I, I, I've seen as the sentiment on the island, I'll respond to the first part of the question. Um, I don't think that my push for inclusion in the Tweede Kamer necessarily means that I'm pushing for inclusion into full citizenship, because I think even in the kind of half integrated situation which we're in now, there still needs to be proper like representation in, in the political sphere for, for the will of the people. It doesn't matter if you want to be independent or not, or be, or be fully dependent. Um, the, the, you, there, there's a group of people who are kind of citizens or kind of constituents, but whose will is not being heard. Either way, that's wrong. Um, as to the second part of the question, um, the, the sentiment on the island is kind of split on Bonaire. Uh, there are people who kind of look at it from an economical perspective, and they say that right now the, the, the economics on the island, the industry on the island isn't strong enough to support in, independence. There are other people who are just uh, by, by way of rights for fighting for full independence. So it's it's a bit split. I don't think there's like a complete consensus on the island. Um, 
but yeah there's the people who just have had enough of the tyranny of the dutch government on the island and they're like we just want to go we, we don't want to be with, with, with the dutch anymore and then the other half recognizes the necessity for dependency just purely because of economical reasons yeah never never simple and simple answers always complex questions and yeah. processes um so um let us digest this for a moment uh we're gonna have a five minute break just enough time for you to get a refill on your cup of tea or and we'll be back here in five minutes um and then we will um have a little bit more of a conversation and go into breakout sessions. Um, so lovely uh, break everyone and we'll see you back in five. Welcome back everyone, Bonvini. Uh, um, so we're gonna close with kind of sharing a little bit of what popped up in this breakout session of talking with other participants. Um, if you wanna uh, share something of what came up in your conversation, or if there was a question that still popped up in your conversation, this is our wrap up time in which we can share. Um, so feel free to unmute yourself. And uh, um, yeah, please, if you're in breakout room one, is there somebody who would like to share what came up? Oh. Or a question. Say it. <laughs> um, no, we just discussed um, if it was fair, like in, in a, a relationship with dependency be fair. We all agreed that it, no, it cannot be fair. And so we quickly agreed, agreed on that. And um, then we also talked about the second question, the one that you asked about how can we bring more attention to the Caribbean uh, islands. We agreed that uh, I, I think we agreed that it was had to do education, but also that it's difficult because education has uh, so much to do with uh, the Netherlands, or like how do you say the Netherlands has such a tight grip on how people get educated in Bonaire, specifically with like the language, but also uh, how they view the Netherlands from their uh, historical perspective. That the Netherlands is like uh, the, the, the how do you say. Um, the good country and that Bonaire is like the corrupt bad country um, kind of like that that's what we discussed yeah totally and it, it makes me think of the Dutch um, uh, Oba library in the Amsterdam by Central Station I went there to try to learn more about Bonaire and other islands and there's like seven floors of library and there's this one floor that has all the different countries with different um, shelves and there was just like one shelf and a half about the Antilles uh, and it was mostly about Curaçao and it was mostly written by white um, uh, scientists or whatever and it was just so like how do you even learn <laughs> uh, if there's so such a policing on knowledge and such a, a narrow uh, window um, that is definitely i think um, somewhere where we can make a difference uh, as a decolonial um, activist or scholar or movement um, thank you for sharing are there other people from other breakout rooms who would like to share what came up with them. 
Um, well, maybe uh, in our part, we uh, um, also shared, well, at, le at least um, one of the questions that, that I had and, and what was looked for, but is difficult is to build other relations with the islands or countries around in the global south, like uh, to form a non, let's say non-alignment movement or something where you look beyond the Netherlands as a dependency partner, but with other countries, but they don't have the, yeah, let's say mandate or capacity to do that within the system house build up, but that there were groups, uh, but you maybe can elaborate on that, but that there were groups trying to form relations or find ties with the islands around it and the importance of that. I mean, we were somewhere in the middle of that conversation when it got, uh, um, yeah, cut off. Um, yeah, so uh, we got, uh, the question from Max was if indeed um, there weren't any movements being made by organizations here to make uh, local ties. And uh, I mentioned mentioned that there are. Uh, the, the organization where I'm doing my internship now uh, itself has, has some uh, conferences and some projects where um, it's, it's working with uh, people from French Guyana, from Martinique, from San Andres, from uh, all over the Caribbean uh, for unity. However, uh, one of the things that Max also mentioned was CARICOM which is uh, is more governmental, but there um, as an NGO we can't participate because that's a government uh, government organization. But the Bonarian government structure uh, that we have also can participate because that's part. It it's becomes responsibility of the Dutch state. So then you'll have the Netherlands participating in CARICOM for Bonaire. Um, so it's, uh, it's it, it, it's complex of itself. Uh, but I do agree that we need to push uh, way more regional alliances. And for the people who don't know CARICOM, it's a, like Kjell said, intergovernmental uh, uh, organization of the Caribbean. So there are about, I don't know, 15 um, different um, uh, countries united in it, which is um, like they also had a whole 10 point program uh, for reparations and such. So there is some union, but it's outside the Dutch Caribbean islands sphere because of this state situation. And maybe this is now as good a time as any to uh, share in the chat a link. Um, it's uh, from Bonaire Human Rights Organization website. Um, and it's a link that also uh, allows you to pre-order a book that is uh, coming out this year. Um, which is going into great detail of, of well, what has been happening since um, 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 the 2010 um, repercussions of changing state um, under uh, the new form of Dutch neo-colonialism. Um, and uh, the names that have come up in this uh, talk as well, James Finney's and uh, Defica Bissar um, being uh, organizers within um, Bonaire Human Rights are probably good to name as they have been um, on the forefront of leading this conversation where um, in the Netherlands, this conversation is not yet uh, finding us, but this is a way to connect to that conversation. Um, so I wanted to share that and also say that as always with decolonial learning sessions after this session we will send all participants to your email 
uh, a document with some uh, tips of what to read, what to see, or what to listen to next, if you want to uh, further your uh, learning, your deep dive into this topic. Um, so with that said, I think... I'll, I'll add to that that the list of, of documents that I've sent, it gets quite a bit technical. So it's really about um, the like how legally like laws have been implemented to justify the current system. So it goes more in that direction than um, stories from people on the islands. Uh, I was going to ask you, uh, Kjeld, if you have some final, some final thoughts for us as we're wrapping this up. Uh, I'm always so bad at final thoughts. Um, first of all, I want to thank everybody for, uh, for, for participating. Um, thanks for all the good ideas. Um, thanks for the people that have reached out for, for, for strength and unity. I think, I think we can make something happen. Um, and yeah, just, just generally thanks for your attention and, and for, uh, for understanding. Yeah. Um, well, I want to thank you, Kjeld, um, for um, being so patient in really taking us through the, the, the range, cause there's so much ground to cover and there's only so much you can do in, in an hour and a half, but, um, it's been really good to be guided uh, by um, by you through this um, uh, topic. Uh, so I'm going to end with some uh, notes. Also, uh, if you think more people should hear about this, we will be uh, publishing this talk on YouTube. So uh, do remember sharing is caring. And uh, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel because we're organizing these decolonial learning sessions every month. Um, also, we offer this uh, talk and other activities free because we want to be ex accessible as we can be, but we do totally appreciate donations. Uh, this can be a small contribution. Every little bit helps. And in the chat, I've just dropped um, um, our information. Um, also, um, if you want uh, to sign up for our newsletter in the chat, you'll find that information or in the show notes. Um, so, um, with that said, I think we covered everything. Yeah, uh, I think I'll just um, want to thank everyone for for kickstarting this 2022 with us, and we know. As decolonials, we always have a lot of homework, but I'm happy that the community is strong and we're joining forces uh, spanning 8,000. Crazy the Dutch kingdom still is. Um, so we transcend borders and transcend weird imposed territories um, and we'll um, forge solidarity to um, Strengthen people power. Thank you and good night.